All right, so today uh, we are starting off a new series, and this is kind of a unique one because we're sort of setting out for three weeks, we're setting out our mission, our vision, and our values as a church. Um, A lot of churches... New Year's-ish, the Sunday after New Year's, do sort of a vision Sunday, whether it's one Sunday or multiple um, for the year. This is like that, um, although we've never done this before. And so it's a little bit unique for us to to sort of lay out a vision statement. Um, If any of you have been a part of corporate culture, you've probably heard of the terms mission, vision, and values. It's sort of a a business corporate um, thing, but it's also used by nonprofits, organizations of all types, including churches. But if you're anything like me, when you, when you start to hear the CEO talk to you about mission, vision, and values, you start to like tune out and roll your eyes because you're just like, okay, great. Thanks, CEO. I just need to do my job, you know. Um, but these concepts, mission, vision, values. They aren't just, the point of them is not just to get an unsuspecting group of employees to, to do their jobs or to, you know, for shareholders to feel good about the company they're invested in or the, the C-suite, you know, the upper level management leaders to check boxes. Um, an organization having a mission, having a vision, and having values basically enables that organization to function in a unified way. It, it enables the organization, the church, the company, whatever it is, to be something and go somewhere because they know who they are and what they're about. And so really it helps the whole group, whether it's a group of employees or a group of, of, of church members, it helps them to be on the same page. And so that's what our series is called. It's called On the Same Page. And so it's, it's basically just laying out who we are, who we are, what we're doing, and why we're doing it. And what better time than to do it the first few weeks of the year, the first day of the year. And so typically, if we're, if we're, if we're looking at the definitions of these words, it can get a little bit confusing. Mission, vision, what's the difference? Uh, Google it and there's debate. Um, but typically, the mission statement of an organization describes sort of the current state of how things operate and why. It's, it's basically what pushes the organization forward, okay? And then the vision statement, so there's the mission statement and then there's the vision statement. The vision statement describes where the organization wants to go, what they aspire to be. So instead of the thing that pushes them forward, it's the thing that pulls them forward. It's where they want to see themselves in 5, 10, 20, 50 years. And then the values, so that's sort of a separate category. The values are the ways and the means by which we accomplish the mission and the vision. It's, it's basically the deal breakers. We will not let go of these while we accomplish what we're about. Uh, the values are core to the integrity of the church, the organization, whatever it is. And these are the attributes that, if left behind, would compromise the organization's very identity. 
So, I'll give you an example. I work uh, now very part-time over at Swedish Medical Center, and they have mission, vision, and values and things. Um, their mission is to improve the health and well-being of each person that they serve. That's their mission statement. And so it's very patient-centered. You know, who is right in front of you? Take care of that person. So that's, that's sort of their mission that, that pushes them forward every day, you know, patient by patient, right? Their vision statement is health <laughs> for a better world. Very broad, very galactic, like right? health for a better world. And basically, in creating that vision statement, they're saying, we want to be around in 100 years, and we want to be caring for the community that is here at that time. And then their values include compassion, justice, excellence, dignity, integrity, and safety. So these are the areas that they don't want to compromise on while they achieve whatever their goals are. Okay, all of that said, if your eyes rolled back, that's fine, because I get that. Um, but we're a church, right? We are, we are a local expression of the body of Jesus Christ here in Seattle in Capitol Hill. And so we, when we lay out our mission, our vision, our values, they should align with God's mission, vision, and values, right? So that's, that's why the way that we're structuring ours is something like this. Our mission is whatever God is doing. That's our mission. And we're going to get into that today. And it's going to be awesome because we get to ponder what God is doing. And that's our mission. That's what we want to be about. Whatever he's about. Okay? Our vision, we're going to look at that next week. It's a, it's a unique, specific vision statement for our specific local church. What our church is about. And I'm excited to get into that next week. And then our values. How are we going to do it? And I invited feedback and input on this. And I got awesome uh, input. And I'm super excited to share that with you guys. So we're looking at, you know, what God is doing today. That's our mission. What we are doing that's our vision, and then how we are going to do it, which, are, which is our values. So on this first day of the year, you know, it makes so much sense to be talking about this. What are we doing? Why are we here? Why didn't you guys sleep in later after celebrating last night? Why did you get out of bed and come and sit in these pews? What is our mission? What is it that is pushing us forward as a church, as a family? So, like I said, at Calvary the Hill, we are making it our mission to be about God's mission. Our mission is defined by what God is doing. So what is God doing? What is God's mission? So to find that out, of course, we're going to open our Bibles we're going to read two parallel passages in the letter of Paul to his pastor friend, Titus. So, it's the book of Titus. It's close to the end of your New Testament. It's at the end of all the T's. So, there's two Timothys, two Thessalonians, and then there's Titus. So, go ahead and open up to Titus chapter 2. 
We're going to read verses 11 through 14, and then we're going to skip and uh, read a little bit of chapter 3 as well. So go ahead and look at Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. And as we read these passages, just in the back of your heads, think, what, what is God doing? You know, that's the question that we're trying to ask. That's the question we're trying to answer. What is God's mission in the world today? Starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Okay, skip over to verse 3 of chapter 3. It's kind of a parallel passage that says similar things. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we, we just come before you first day of the year and we, we humbly, we, we want to do so humbly, Lord. We, we want to do so humbly, want to, we want to do so with open hands, we want to do so on our knees. We want to be about what you're about, God. So I pray that today you would teach us through your word, through your Holy Spirit, what it is that you're about so we can just jump on your coattails because we want to be about what you're about because you are our Father and we look to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So in these passages, there's many things that God is doing. There's a lot of verbs in there that are God's. A lot of activities that he is involved in. And we're going to dive into them. And we're going we're gonna to look at, and it's really cool because basically these passages lay out a Trinitarian mission. Because Paul mentions the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and what each of them are doing in the world. But what is the thread that unites all of them? You know, what, we, when we read these, we're reading words like salvation, training, redemption, purification, regeneration, renewal. 
What is the thread that binds them all up? If, if we were to, to say in a, a sentence what God is doing in the world right now, what would it be? You know, and James actually, and he didn't know I was going to talk about this, but he said it. He said, Jesus is making all things new. And if we fast forward to one of the last things God says before closing the book, before finishing out the Bible as we know it, in Revelation chapter 21, God says this. He says, behold, I am making all things new. Behold, I am making all things new. So in a giant nutshell, we can state that God's mission is to renew all things in Jesus Christ. Is that fair to say? I mean, there's a lot crammed into that. But his mission is to renew all things in Jesus Christ. And like I said, I, I'm not going to claim that this is the only thing God is doing. He's, he's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. He is omniscient. He knows all. He is everywhere. He is sustaining our breath right now. That's also what God is doing. He's upholding the universe by the word of his power, it says. He, he's doing a lot. But this project to renew all things in Jesus Christ. This is most assuredly his priority project. This is his New Year's resolution every year to renew all things in Jesus Christ. But how is he accomplishing this? How is he doing his mission to renew all things? And these passages sort of delineated in beautiful terms this Trinitarian partnership between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in what they are doing in the world. If we look back at verse 11, we see God the Father, the grace of God appearing, bringing salvation and training. So we see God the Father saving people and training them up as his new sons and daughters. And then we see in verse 14, Jesus, God the Son, redeeming and purifying. And then we see over in chapter 3, the Holy Spirit regenerating and renewing. The, the triune Godhead, the three persons of the Trinity that we call God, are doing this together. They are partnering together and what are all these activities pointing at? Where is this saving, training, redeeming, purifying, regenerating, renewing? Where is that pointed? It's pointed at the church. The church. How is God accomplishing his mission? Father, Son, and Spirit all coming together to create sustain and grow the church. That's where his energy is going. That's what he is focused on. That's what he is excited about. That's what he's spending his time on. Granted, he has unlimited time, and time doesn't mean anything to him. You know what I mean. He is focused here on building up, on creating, on pouring his love into the church. 
So we're going to look at each of these specifically and what that means. Each of these activities that God is utilizing to accomplish this mission. So first we have God the Father. He is saving and training. First, saving. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Notice that God here and now is not about judgment yet. He's about salvation. And it's available for who? Everyone. It says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Will all people be saved? Unfortunately not. But all people are invited to experience that salvation. And when I say he is focused on the church, I don't mean an insulated, isolationist focus. Like, we're just his good kids and he doesn't care about everyone who's outside his family. No, no. He is focused on getting people in, inside his church. He brought salvation for all people. So yeah, he's focused on the church, but he's also focused on growing it and getting people in on getting them inside the ark. If you think back to Noah, he wants all people underneath the saving work of Christ, which is the only safe place to be. John 3, uh, we read last week uh, on Christmas Day, John 3.16. And Jesus moves on from 3.16 into 3.17. I'm going to read both of those for you. Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So God's New Year's resolution is to get more people saved. But he doesn't just leave us as saved. He then trains us. It says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So he saves and then he trains. And that word training also means disciplining. It's the same word as a loving father who has a child who wants him or her to grow into a, a person who can contribute, who can love people, who is not just focused on themselves. The, way, the only way to do that is through discipline, is through teaching over time, training. And that's also God's focus. God doesn't stop at saving us from sin's consequences. He moves on to saving us from sin's power over us. Since we have been adopted as God's beloved sons, as God's beloved daughters, he loves us as much as his own son. And he is pouring energy and effort into making us more like his beloved son. And this involves opportunities to grow. That's what discipline is. It's an opportunity to grow. If you're in a season where you're having to wait 
guess what? <laughs> it's an opportunity that God has given you to grow in patience. If you're in a season where you're coming to grips with your own anger, that's deep down there, you don't know where it came from, God has given you an opportunity to grow in understanding that, in giving that over to him. All of these areas and, and difficult seasons that we can encounter are God's gift of discipline so that we can grow. Like Jarius prayed, I want to be tried by fire. That hurts, but it also burns away the stuff that is no good. <laughs> and that's a gift. And so when you're in the kingdom of God, he, whether it's a, a season of joy or a season of sorrow, each season is used by God to make us more like Jesus. And that's his discipline. And it's his discipline in action. Notice also the grace of this. It says that he trains us to renounce these other things. And then in chapter 3, it says, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, slaves to various passions, and all these things. And then verse 4, But when the grace, the goodness, and loving kindness of God appeared, he saved us. He offered us a way out of a selfish life. A way out of a selfish, indulgent life. Notice, according to the Bible here, there is no neutral life. It's either a life without God, enslaved to your natural, sinful passions, or it's a life devoted to God. There's no middle ground. It's one or the other. And thankfully, because Jesus came, we have a choice. We have a choice. We can take that fork in the road towards life instead of death. And that's where Jesus comes in, to redeem us from that slavery to our own way. And that's where we move into the Son. So we talked about the Father saving and training. Here we have the Son in verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people. And so redeem it means to, to purchase, to, to buy back. You were a slave. You had no way out, and you've been redeemed. You've been taken out of that place. He purchased your freedom. He set you free. And in chapter 3, we find it's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy. So that's part of the Son's work. He, he redeems us from that place. And then he purifies us. Just like God saves us and trains us, Jesus redeems us, then cleanses us. You weren't just purchased and set free. You have been cleansed. You are being cleansed. You were cleansed. That happened. You are being cleansed. It's still happening. And look at the why. In verse 14, to redeem, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. You know, he's, Jesus is not, is not so, just a divine philanthropist, you know, going around saving people, being such a good guy. No, no, he's in it for you. He's in it so you can be his treasured possession. You're a part of his body, a part of his bride. We talked about in Ephesians. He's got plans, and they involve you and him, and he's excited. 
So we see the Father, we see the Son, and then finally the Spirit in chapter 3. It says in verse 5, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration and renewal. These are what the Holy Spirit is doing in us. Interestingly, the only other time this word regeneration is used in the New Testament is when Jesus talks about the new world. He says, in the new world, when that world comes, and he goes on to explain, that is what he's talking about. The regeneration, the preparing you for a new world. The Spirit is preparing you to live in the new heaven and the new earth. He's the one who will make your current and eventually dead body come back to life. Fit for this new world. He will regenerate your physical body. But not only that, the Spirit is the one who provides you with a new heart, a new spiritual heart. The heart that was promised hundreds and hundreds of years before this was written in the book of Ezekiel, the heart of flesh to replace your heart of stone. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So you can and will desire to walk in God's ways. Just like he will regenerate your physical body, he has already begun to regenerate your spiritual one. So regenerating and then renewing. Have you noticed that this Trinitarian mission is mirrored? That the Father saves and trains. The Son redeems and purifies. The Spirit regenerates and renews. They're like synonyms, but they're each unique to this person of the Trinity. This renewing that the Holy Spirit is doing in us is an ongoing process that will continue until you either die or Jesus returns. So is this just a passive process? You know, do we just need to Sit back, relax, while God just does his work on us like at a spa? Do we, do we take the lead on this? Do we, you know, God saves us and then we go to work helping ourselves get better? Well, Paul answers this question with a yes and yes in the book of Philippians, which we're going to get into in a couple weeks. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, he says, work out your own salvation. And then he adds, with fear and trembling. Now, if we had that Bible verse all of its own, we'd be like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, that sounds hard. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Thankfully, he adds this, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So does God do it? Yes. But do we participate? Yes. So that's the Trinitarian mission that God is about. So how do we respond to this? What what is after hearing, after receiving and and learning that the Father does these things, the Son is doing these things, the Spirit is about these things, how do we respond to this triune God 
who is bending over backwards for us to save us, to discipline us, to redeem us, to purify us, to regenerate and renew us. You know, do we, January 1st, right? It's, it's New Year's resolution time. Do we just need to like put our nose to the grindstone and get to work for God? Not so fast. Because if we're not careful, that's exactly what we'll do. And we'll become either burned out and jaded or overwhelmed and despairing. So how do we respond? Strewn through these passages has been our response, our proper response. Let's take a look. In verse 12, it says, Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And then skip over over to verse 3 of chapter 3. It says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Here we see in these bleak pictures, of ourselves, we see that we should respond by trusting God with our past. That's our first step. Trust God with your past. God, in his grace, goodness, and loving kindness, he looks on you, and he looks on where you were. He looks on where you've been. He looks on what you've done, and he does so And offers his hand to pull you out. He does not offer shame in exchange for your past. He offers a rescuing hand. So we can entrust our past to God. Many of us carry our pasts with us constantly. We can entrust those pasts to him. And anytime we find our past still clinging to us, which we will often do, we can remember that Jesus soaked up every ounce of the judgment of God. Every ounce. He drank the cup of God's wrath to the dregs on our behalf. So now, as his beloved sons and daughters, what we get after that transaction took place, we get grace. We get goodness. We get loving kindness. When we're in Jesus, that's where we start from. Every day, every week, every year. So we can trust God with our past. Next, we find we can trust God with our future. Look at verse 13 of chapter 2. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then skip over to chapter 3, verse 7. It says, So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we can trust God, not just with our past, but with our future. Many of us spend a good portion of our waking hours worried about our future. Unknowns, uncertainties coming. Our future, the earth's future, our kids' future, our grandkids' future. But here, God is inviting us to trust him with our future. Everything after the right now, we can trust him with. Why? Because there is good coming. 
there is good coming. And Jesus invites us to the same. He says, do not worry about tomorrow, for today has enough trouble of its own. We have a blessed hope, Paul calls it. A blessed hope, which is the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Side note, that's one of the best verses talking about the divinity of Jesus. There's a, there's a whole grammar argument called the Granville Sharp Rule. basically says, you know, two, two uh, adjectives, you know, uh, describing words prior to a proper noun are talking about the proper noun. The appearing of our great God and Savior, who? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our God and our Savior. The hope we have of eternal life with him. So we can trust God with our future, knowing that we have a sure and hope-saturated one. I spent a lot of my childhood and middle school and high school and college years just anxious, anxious about my future. I didn't know what it looked like. It was so hazy. I, I couldn't pin it down. It just felt like too much. And over time, God finally didn't show me exactly what it was going to look like. He showed me what he looked like. And that a future with him, walking with him, is sure. It's got sure footing. It's got a sure foundation. It's got hope because it's, a, it's with him. Not because it's all great and amazing and fun. It's because it's with him. That's why our future is so sure and so, can be so full of hope. So we can trust God with our past, our future, and finally we can peacefully trust him with our present. Look at verse 14. It says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. And this is the interesting end who are zealous for good works. And similarly, over in chapter 3, verse 8, it says, I want you to insist on these things. Paul's talking to his pastor friend, Titus. He says, preach this. It preaches. Just do it. Preach it. He says, insist on these things, that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So we see this this word, these, this dual word, good works, repeated twice. And so having, having given over our past to God, having entrusted our future with him, we can now focus. We can now set to the task of our present. We can, we can be all in. We can be all here. We can be We can give ourselves unto good works. Does that look like sitting around? No, it looks like zealous work. Zealous. We don't use that word much, but it's intense. Some English synonyms for zealous are fervent, ardent, fervid, fiery, passionate, impassioned, devout, devoted, committed, dedicated, enthusiastic, eager, keen, avid. You get the picture zealous for good works. Just, mm, give me it. Give me the work. Give me, let me at it. 
some, some antonyms, or the opposite is apathetic, indifferent. No, God doesn't want us to be apathetic. He doesn't want us to be apathetic to the needs of those around us. He doesn't want us to be apathetic to our own needs. He wants us to be zealous for good works. That term good works is, there's not a lot of other ways to put it. It's fairly generic. Good works. And as always, the order matters. Notice in verse 5 of chapter 3, he says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. He saved us not because of good works, right? We find in Ephesians 2, the order matters. We're not saved because of our works. We're saved unto them. We're saved and then gifted work, meaningful work. Praise God. We are saved unto a not boring life. Are you so thankful for that? Capital B, boredom is like the worst thing ever. When you're saved unto meaningful work, meaningful tasks, meaningful mission, meaningful purpose, that will change your whole demeanor. But as always, the the order matters. We don't do our, our things, our works, our callings, our vocations. We don't do them to earn anything with God. But why? Why? Because we have it all already. We get the verdict up front, not guilty. Now go. Jesus, the woman caught in adultery, everyone's holding rocks, ready to stone her, and he doesn't judge her, and he says, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. I free you. And we get that from him too. These works we do are not to make up for our past or to preserve our future. They are to be a gift from God for our present They're a present. (laughs) And it really doesn't so much matter to a point what it is you're doing. I can't tell you what your good works versions are. We're all unique. We're all different. We've all been gifted different talents, different skills, different demeanors, different personalities, different spiritual gifts. And God has given each of us a measure of good works to do as a gift. The word for gift over in Ephesians chapter 3, when Paul's talking about spiritual gifts, he uses the same word when he talks about his calling, his vocation to the Gentiles. He said, it's a gift. It's a grace. This is a grace from God. And so, it doesn't really matter what the works are that you're doing. It matters how you're doing it, why you're doing it, and for whom you are doing it. James tells us that every good and perfect gift is from God. And that includes the opportunity to exercise our gifts, to exercise our talents, our passions, our vocations. You know, there's a few good works that are sort of assigned by default to all Christians. Thanksgiving, prayer, being a a living testimony to God's work in your life. Not being ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. You know, all these, all these things are, are good works that we are assigned, but there's so much 
There's so much that God wants to give you to do. But not for you to say, oh man, I can't. What if I fail? What if you fail? God's with you. God's with you even if you fail. But at least you tried. (laughs) It's beautiful. So we respond to God's gracious mission in the world with trust. You know, we, we can trust God with our past, present, and future, both as individuals and as a church at large, as a, as a body of believers here. You know, our mission at Calvary the Hill is to be about God's mission, to renew all things in Jesus Christ. You know, that's his resolution. That's what he is set on doing and always will be until the end of the age. So that's our mission. Next week, we'll look at our vision, which is what we are doing, what what we've been assigned to do as his local expression here in Capitol Hill in this community. But for now, as as we reflect this first day of the year on what God is about, we can recalibrate ourselves. We can entrust ourselves to that God who is worthy, is worthy of our trust. Let's dedicate ourselves afresh once again. We'll do it again next week, (laughs) but why not do it today? Dedicate ourselves afresh to serving this God who deserves our whole selves since he gave us himself. So we're going to spend some time doing that. Let's pray. God, thank you that we, we are all here under one banner. The grace, goodness, and loving kindness of God. Thank you for saving and rescuing and redeeming and training and purifying and regenerating and renewing each of us who call Jesus our Lord and our Savior. Any of those here this morning who do not call Jesus their Lord or their Savior, I pray for them today. I pray that your spirit would tug on their hearts this morning. And if you're here this morning and you have not called Jesus your Lord and Savior, but today you want to, I want to invite you to pray with me. So go ahead and just repeat after me, whether it's silently to yourself or out loud. Dear God, It's the first day of the year. And I thank you that not only on the first day of the year, but every day you offer a brand new start. And I'm a sinner, so I don't deserve a brand new start. But because of the blood shed by Jesus, because of his body broken for me, I am offered a brand new start. I believe that Jesus lived the life I couldn't live, that he died the death that I deserve, and that he was resurrected to new life so that I could be reconciled with God. I proclaim Jesus is Lord. Today and the rest of this year and the rest of my life. 
Help me by your Holy Spirit to walk in his ways. Thank you. And Lord, for any that prayed that prayer today, I pray that you would just surround them with assurance. Lord, that your spirit would speak tenderly to them, calling them beloved, son, daughter. I pray that they would be baptized. I pray that they would be formed into the image of your son. And for all of us, Lord, today, uh, 2023, as it dawns, we, we again submit ourselves to you afresh. We give ourselves to you, knowing that you only have good for us. You are a good father. Even your discipline is good. So we submit to it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right.